So by way of motivation, let's think about the importance of the uh, having really a competent guide on this path to full awakening. And for myself, what comes to mind first is how kind of ignorant my mind is, how so many things are even unknown, my motivations, uh, some of the afflictions that are uh, causing me to behave in different ways or think different things, not always so clear. And then when you start thinking about the different kind of teachings that we learn about the nature of reality, obviously that takes a lot of guidance and you can see just from the history of Buddhism that it's been difficult to untangle the teachings and really understand the deepest nature of reality. So for those of us who live here, many of you in the room, our abbess is one of our main teachers and is our guiding light. And we are like, would be very uh, wise to hold on to the tail of that comet. And we actually, most of us think of her as a person with more energy than we can keep up with. So a comet's quite a good uh, analogy. So what is the main goal of our practice is to have this compassion that is so expansive that we want to become fully awakened in order to alleviate every being from their suffering. So let's take a moment to make that our motivation for spending this time together as the broadest motivation. over in the book that we've been studying for 37 plus two months. <laughs> and we're going to finish a review today and then next month, and then uh, that will be the end of Don't Believe Everything You Think, which is a commentary on a, the text, The 37 Practices of Bodhisattvas. And so we're reviewing verses 23 through 30 today, and then we have one more sharing the Dharma Day next month. So these verses, this uh, today are mostly about the uh, practices of the Bodhisattva, the deeds that the Bodhisattva does uh, once they've generated this mind that wants to become fully awakening, then what the heck do they do? Well, we have these, what are called the six perfections. But we're not quite up to those yet. We're actually on the chapter before, which is uh, they've just explained the nature of reality, the deepest, deepest nature of reality, now we're going to just jump from that 
do once you've realized that on the cushion, what do you do when you get up off the cushion and you're walking around in the world? And so the verse uh, says, it, it actually in, in this aspect of the verse, um, they call this like the illusion-like nature of things. You're supposed to see things as like an illusion. And in this particular verse, they're trying to help us with our difficulty with being attracted to things and getting into trouble because of that. So it's called Chasing Rainbows is what Venable titled this verse. And it says, it's verse 23, when you encounter attractive objects, although they seem beautiful, like a rainbow in summer, don't regard them as real and give up attachment. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. So, okay, we've kind of talked a little bit about what bodhisattvas are. There are these beings who have generated this aspiration to become fully awakened in order to believe the suffering of every sentient being, not just humans, but every being. And now in the previous verse, they've realized the nature of reality in their meditation through lifetimes of practice, and now they're getting up and walking around and they're getting attracted to things. And <laughs> What are you supposed to do? Well, actually, this verse is probably more for us. What are, that's why we're here. What are we supposed to do? What can we learn from this? So what we have to know a little bit about the nature of reality, I think, to, to kind of answer what is this verse going to help us with. And this is actually our mind projecting something onto phenomena, to different things that actually doesn't exist at all. And then that comes back, appears from the object to our mind, and we think it's, it's how things exist. And what, what is it that's getting projected? It's this um, one, the words that we use mostly are intrinsic or inherent existence. It's this notion that things look to like they exist in and of themselves without any you know, just independent of everything else, completely, just on their own, like, here's a gong, here's a thermos, here's a clock, didn't need anything else to make that there. If you just walked in the room, everybody knows this is a thermos. Nothing else was needed, it's just there. Okay. Um, but that isn't really the way things exist. Things aren't unrelated to the mind and other factors. Nothing exists independently. Everything is originally, is arisen dependently even though things appear independent and objective, existing on their own out there, actually nothing exists that way. Everything is interrelated in some way, at least at a level of mutual dependence of, so, so, but because we see things that way, things seem so real, right? We think that uh, things are out there unrelated to our mind, and then we get attracted to things, and we grasp after them and run after things. So that's what this verse is talking about. And I'm trying to just introduce each verse today briefly, and then try to help this, have the story uh, be uh, how we try to understand the verse. So one analogy I like to give to this, to understand what it is we're talking about here is, is ice cream. Because ice cream seems like it's just inherently delicious, you know, to me, you know, independent of any other factor. And so that's, you know, I love ice cream, and the, the, the good, goodness of the ice cream is in the ice cream. It has really not much to do with me. But that's not the way things exist at all. Things aren't like that. Even the attractiveness we see in things, they aren't like radiating out pleasure, like 
pleasure isn't radiating out from ice cream, right? The attractiveness of something, why I get attached to it. Can't you even see just from the way I'm describing it, it's a little out of balance there. <laughs> something is wrong with this picture. Okay. So uh, if we just broaden that out, you know, from that little example, things aren't independent. Things are dependent. And what are they dependent on? Well, for things that are, you know, like things like that are like produce, you might say, um, they depend on causes and conditions. And things that are not produced, things that are permanent, they depend on, and, and everything else depends on parts. Everything has parts. If something, you know, and also things depend on us conceiving of them and labeling them. And so we'll get into this a little bit here to try to explain this. But those are the three main, one, one way to explain dependent arising is things depend on causes and conditions, so they aren't independent on their own, unrelated to everything else. Things depend on parts, again, there's, you know, uh, that's a, if something was inherently existent, it wouldn't need parts, it wouldn't have parts. And then dependent on being conceived and labeled. So I, I find it easier to talk about ants. <laughs> you know, I conceive of this as a gong, but I think of an ant or one of our stink bugs crawled up here, they probably wouldn't be conceiving of this as a gong. They probably conceive of this as a mountain or something, you know. I don't know what's going on in their mind, but so we've come up with this idea of a gong, and so for us this is a gong, but it's not really to every creature. It's probably more like a fishbowl to a fish. So <laughs> there you go. Depends on your view, right? That's what the point is. Okay, so now we've got our nature of reality down, right? <laughs> We're going to go <laughs> We're going on to how things appear <laughs> when you get up off the cushion once you've realized this at a very, very deep level. And how are we going to deal with these things that we're attracted to? And that's what this verse is about, that, you know, things look real, looks like the, they have their own essence, and we are just, you know, and then we're finding them pleasurable, and we're attracted to them, and we have this attachment where we're actually superimposing, making up or exaggerating the good qualities of something. So, you know, we're kind of going up, there's certainly many levels of how we're seeing things. But, you know, for our ice cream example, the idea is that the essence of ice cream is delicious. Most flavors. Depends on the brand. <laughs> so, okay. But not only, not only deliciousness is rating from ice cream, but objects themselves seem to exist on their own and set themselves up, right? So I think an easier example for that, to see how we think that think something is set up unrelated to the mind, is to think about a $50 bill. Okay, so that's, that, if there was $50 laying down there, I would say that has some monetary value all on its own. I don't really need to add or subtract anything to that. That's how it feels. That's how it seems. That's, part, that's what I'm thinking. I would probably pick it up. <laughs> so, but it doesn't exist that way independent of other factors. It has parts. It's got paper and ink and a front side and a back side. It's dependent on causes and conditions. There had to be paper mills and there had to be printing presses and the discovery of all these things and laborers and artists who made the pictures on them and uh, the, 
distrib distrib distribution processes, right, to get all these bills out to everybody, banks to store them and vaults and whatever. And then there had to be the mind that's uh, conceiving of money and labeling it as such, you know, for when, uh, you know, when they have these great depressions and you can fill your wheelbarrows full of money, you know, they're kind of still money, but they're almost by, probably better to build a fire with. <laughs> might be more useful sometimes, you know. So what makes it a $50 bill is just this squiggle on there that we've decided has a certain meaning. So that's definitely coming from the mind. There's nothing on the side of that bill that makes it money. It's not inherent in the bill. Does that make any sense? So the mind is definitely involved with that. So back to our verse, when we see things as attractive, we have to try to recognize that they're only appearances. Like this, they seem so real, like the rainbow in summer, the rainbow feels so real, but actually it's, you can put your hand through it. Actually, I don't think you could actually get up to one. Probably wouldn't see it, right? Because it's the way, the whole cause and conditions that are making that happen. But even from afar, if you thought about it, it's not, there's nothing solid there. So, let's see how the verse, uh, the story, I like the story, I thought it was pretty good. See how we can understand the meaning here of the verse through the story that was presented. I have a precept not to eat after noon. So many of us who live here with the Buddhist precepts that we have, we when we have dinner, what you call dinner, we call it medicine meal because those of us who take that take it as medicine because if we could, we wouldn't be eating then. We have a precept not to eat you know, after the, after like the noon meal. So those of us who can do that. So we have a precept not to eat after noon. And sometimes it's a real challenge to keep it. For example, one day someone offered homemade bread, a beautiful black loaf of Russian rye bread that was set out at dinner time ah, in the community where I live. And I love this kind of bread and my mind went crazy. We understand food around here. <laughs> Seems to be a topic of conversation. Why did they put out the rye bread now? It should be put out at breakfast when I can eat it. There won't be anything left by the time I'm able to eat. That's a real conversation around here. <laughs> this kind of whining and complaining has been a pattern of mine since I was little, and I'm sick of it. It makes me miserable. And when the complaints start pouring out of my mouth, it makes others miserable as well. So after seeing this delicious bread, I sat down and I asked myself, where is the happiness in this bread? If you can find it, you can have it. <laughs> Pretty good. That's, that, that, that made this story. If you can find it, you can have it. You can break your precept and eat it. But if you can't find it, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> See, these are all stories from people we know. And most of them I know who they're from. This one I'm not so sure. <laughs> We'll, be, we'll hear about that later, maybe. <laughs> so I know this sounds harsh, but for me it's an effective way to deal with the whining mind. It took me almost no time at all to realize there's no happiness in that bread, and it doesn't matter if there's any left for me to eat the next day. Instead, I rejoiced that others were eating and enjoying it. It was so easy to make a cup of tea and sit with the group. I didn't even watch people eat the bread. It was gone like a rainbow in summer. 
<laughs> it was gone. I'm sure it got finished off. So. And then the next verse is similar because it's still um, related to the same topic. And this is uh, 24. I find this one a little harder to... That one's kind of easy to track, right? I think I could imagine myself even doing that. But this one I find a little harder because now we're going to deal with the emptiness, the lack of inherent existence, the lack of kind of realness, you might say, of unpleasant objects or suffering. Now that feels a little more real to me. But here's what our verse says. All forms of suffering are like a child's death in a dream. Holding illusory appearances to be true makes you weary. Therefore, when you meet with disagreeable circumstances, see them as illusory, as like an illusion. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. So, what is this verse trying to help us with? It's really trying to help us not to go through our days with a lot of aversion, hostility, and you know, every time we run into something that we don't like, or you know, we find unpleasant, whatever level it could be, small or big or whatever, it's actually asking us to see these as like illusions. I think that's quite a stretch for me, actually. But I think if we spend time with this, I find ways where I can work with this. I don't know if that's the word I was use, I would use, but I think it's actually what I'm doing. Kind of, I would say in my mind, I more kind of deconstruct things. Is how I work with it. Like an illusion or a mirage, something is appearing one way, but existing another way. So that appearance is false. But it still exists. And this is the thing. How does it exist? It's not independent like my mind is seeing it. It's dependent. So my little example to myself is like unkind words. That's really hard for me. Something I can perceive as unkind words. And I never think of them as like an illusion. But I do find myself deconstructing this so that I'm not reactive to these. Because it makes suffering in the mind what I perceive as unkind words. And what helps me a lot is to, okay, I'm not, I'm not taking this apart to the point where this, I'm not, this doesn't exist. I have emotions that are responding to these things. I have reactions. I have everything going on. I have my afflictions coming up, my attachment to kind words, all that. So, but when I, can I deconstruct this in a way that I can see wow, I don't have to, this is not the only possible response here, and I might be able to actually even see what's going on for the other person here. And so for me, that's, I find that helpful. And why? Because holding illusory appearances to be true makes you weary. When you think that these things are so real, that, like, you know, what's happening to you is just so real, you start to feel like you're in a drama. You know, you could just turn on an afternoon sitcom or whatever they're called, What's the name? Soap opera. That's the word. Soap opera. Like the drama in the mind is is a little over the top, I think, for me. I was taught that by our abbess, actually. <laughs> she made me see that I was making dramas up. So then, that with that kind of situation, then whenever anything unpleasant happens, and you're just kind of in this, like everything feeling so real, then yeah, I really should be angry. <laughs> They really are a jerk, and it's like more like that, you know. And that's that's really a limited view, right? And if you could see this more as like an illusion, or maybe deconstructed in the way that 
you can get to work for you so it really falls apart from this solid looking thing, what would happen then? You could give, you could actually move, make more space in the mind and actually give up the notion that's making you so unhappy, at least, at least for some of our mental suffering. And even with physical suffering, you know, like you think of just the word cancer, you know, that alone isn't going to cause you uh, any physical problems if you hear the word cancer. But we do cause ourselves physical problems and anxiety and all kinds of things when that word is labeled on us, right? So if you hear the word cancer and somebody else has it, or you hear the word cancer and you have it, it's quite a different experience. But you've actually only heard a sound wave coming in at some level. Not saying you, you know, things aren't real, but there's a way where you can deconstruct your experience and try to work with your mind so you're not locked into like some kind of anxious, you know, knee-jerk response. You, we have many ways to respond to things that happen to us, even physical suffering. So that allows our mind to have more space and we can let go of a lot of the emotions that are making us unhappy. And we can also realize that, yes, things do exist. They, there's not like nothing happening here, but the way I'm seeing them is not really, the, the way they're appearing is not really the way things are existing. We think, for example, that we could control everything. You know, that comes to mind and then we get frustrated when we can't. But if you actually had this mind, you know, thinking this way, it would be, Ludicrous to think you could control everything. That's that's like, where's the dependent arising in that? <laughs> that's like, you know, like the internal dictator thinking they can control everything. That's impossible. So when you think in this way, it, it gives the mind a lot more space. For me, it mostly helps me see a bigger picture, and that allows my mind to... Um, well, relax more and have more wisdom in it, I would say. I like her example in the book, actually. Let's say you win the lottery and you're elated. That'd be awesome, right? But what do you actually possess? The money is just pieces of paper and ink that we've, partic that we've imputed a meaning to in our society. And actually, they're probably going to give it to you electronically. So really what's going to happen is you're just going to have a piece of paper that has squiggles on it that look different. And then let's say that, that the stock market collapses and the squiggles on your bank statement now indicate that your wealth has vanished. <laughs> now what do you have? You have different squiggles on a piece of paper. Maybe not even on paper. You might do it all digitally. It's just on your computer screen. So in, you know, when you think about things in this way, I mean, it seems kind of far-fetched really from my mind. I don't think I can buy into this completely. But, you know, I can see how I can work through this. Yes, it's real. You won the lottery, now you lost everything. You're not negating that. But all the meaning that we put on this, you know, this is just an example to help us to see uh, that these things are actually not existing independent of other factors. And it is a little bit like an illusion. That one actually I think is closer to an illusion than anything else. Because it's you can just see there's this statement this month, statement next month. What changed? These squiggles on your computer? I don't know.
Okay, so let's see the head here. To me, this feels a little real, but the story, I think it helps us with that. This is a little bit of a long story, but I think, you know, most of us don't have the realization of emptiness, so all this kind of seems like, oh, nice idea, but then when something happens, we can't apply it fully. This story really brings this out, I think. This is a friend of ours. Uh, it's called Losing a Child. After having read a piece by Joan Didion, in which she described having dinner with her husband, who died right there at the table, I was sitting down for breakfast when the phone rang. It was Margaret with a tight-voiced question. Are you sitting down? I knew this wouldn't be good, good news. Jasper was shot and killed in Ecuador. This is a true story. A bolt of energy ran through me, and I felt like the ground had just dropped away. I sat down. Margaret, who called as Jasper's mom, and I'm his godmother. For 18 years, we shared raising him and his two siblings. Jasper was almost 23 years old, and from the age of 16, he traveled at least once a year to Ecuador to spend time the family he'd met during a cultural enrichment program, and he loved Ecuador and the people, and he planned to spend several months there each year. Shortly after Jasper's death, I, did, I participated in a meditation retreat. Often my attention turned to his violent death, which seemed unreal to me like a dream. Jasper, Jasper was not a violent kid and rarely caused problems. He was intense, nervous, helpful, bright, and funny. And his death was so unexpected, and I tried to understand how something like this could happen. Meanwhile, I was going through emo many emotions, sadness, fear, denial, anger, despair at the state of the world, and I began to look for ways to deal with the waves of tangled feelings and thoughts that made me exhausted and spun me in circles. The first helpful thought was that many parents in this world lose their children to violence gang shooting, wars, harsh accidents, and I began to connect with all of those parents to share our sadness and to send them light and healing energy of the Buddha in my meditation. And this sense of connection, of joining in their pain and loss, began to loosen some of the knots inside of me. And I also thought long and hard about the parents of the young man who had killed Jasper. They must be experiencing great agony, fear, and anger. And how are they handling the shattered dreams they had for their son? I realized that in a way, those parents faced a situation more painful than I did. And I sent them and their son the Buddha's healing peace many times over. And this led me to reflect more deeply on the pervasive interdependence of all things. I think this is where she really taps into this verse. There are countless causes and conditions leading to the sad ending of a short life. And she goes through that. It's, it's, it's quite a bit longer after that. I think that's as close as she got to the verse. And then at the end, uh, her Dharma teacher actually tried to, you know, was helping her, reminding her that his death is like an illusory appearance. It appears truly existent, although it's not. Grasping this dependently arising appearance as truly existent, real event, does make me weary. Nourishing attachment for Jasper and clinging to my expectation of how life should be are exhausting. When I'm able to see these as illusion-like events that are dependently arising, my mind relaxes and has more space. 
I think that kind of captures what might be possible for us. You know, we don't have a full realization of emptiness. This event did happen. You're going to have all these reactions to it. But you can use this kind of teaching to um, try to see these things as uh, in their full picture of all the different causes and conditions that came together to lead to this. You know, what do people think? I find it be this would be a stretch for me. A stretch in what way? Well, it just feels so real. The person, my, you know, my godson is gone, and I, I can see how if I, uh, how my mind could get, go through all these stages of grief and these kind of experiences and not really be able to see anything illusion-like about this. What is so illusion-like about a person who you love who's dead? <laughs> that's where my mind would go. But that's not exactly what, that's not exactly the right way to be thinking about this. It's not asking you to say this didn't happen. It's actually asking you to stretch your mind out. This is why I have to go to kind of the deconstruction mode of or turning it to the side of all, seeing all the causes and conditions that led to an event, making co connections with all these other people. Like you could feel so alone in that, my godson, my son, just me. And you, you know how your mind would draw in? That's all you would be holding and you would be just miserable. And then if you could let your mind expand out, like she did to these other people, wow, other people have experienced this. There's so many things going on in the world that led to this event. You know, just kind of like that more expansive mind that sees the big picture. For me, that's kind of like the dependent arising side. But I don't know if you can feel it, but for me, I could see how my mind would just contract. This is so real. And then could try to expand it out to have a greater understanding and acceptance, maybe. Yeah. I find the comfort in that story is when she says she thinks about the family of the boy who actually shot that one. And I thought that really does expand your, your thinking. And I think when you're in that grief, it's hard to find things to lift you out. Mm -hmm. And I think that you know something like that mm -hmm. can give you something to do. Right. Give you something to practice getting yourself in a more equitable place and healing. Right. So. Yeah, and help to. And if you didn't do that, like for example, we know people on death row, and sometimes the person who is the this is a person who's murdered someone. The person who was murdered. Sometimes the family wants revenge, but our friend, who's a lawyer that def is a public defender and works with people on death row, says those families who are holding revenge really don't heal. They don't heal. So if you let your mind stay like stuck in that kind of thought pattern, where's the healing going to be? But what, like, as you're saying, a mind that can open out and see, like, wow what was going on for this person who did this, and what was going on in this society, in this situation, I think there was kind of some societal thing going on that was, you know, like for instance, things related to gangs. Gangs aren't happening in a vacuum. This death wasn't happening in a vacuum. This was part of some thing that was going on in that society. It wasn't, as I recall, the more details of the story. You know, I have a friend who is young, 
early 30s and he has an inoperable brain tumor. And he, from the minute he got diagnosed, he said, instead of forming that anti-feeling about cancer and tumors, he says, I'm going to love my tumor. It is part of my body. And from that change of thought, a whole bunch of people got on the bandwagon and started to make t-shirts that said be positive and all these things and they ended up raising money to help people who came in from out of town to Seattle for tumors and that didn't have any money for a meal or didn't have a place to stay. So, you know, that healing brings that expansive yeah. change. So yeah. It doesn't take away the fact that he's living with that tumor and he'll die with that tumor soon, but he benefited sentient beings. Yeah, how well, he was able to work with his mind around this situation. Okay, we'll see how many verses we get through. We're on to the next one, which is generosity. Um, now they get a little easier. Moving away from the nature of reality. <laughs> that takes longer to think about, even to explain. So, we had some orientation to generosity in the meditation this morning. And the verse says, um, and actually, the subtitle that Venerable gave us is Practicing Giving Without Expectations. When those who want enlightenment must give even their body, there's no need to mention external things. Therefore, without hope for return or any fruition, give generously. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. So these are these six practices that we're starting now. Generosity, ethical conduct, fortitude, joyous effort, meditative stabilization, and wisdom, which I'm sure we won't get through, but that's where we're headed now in this uh, text. And the practice of generosity, generosity make, means actually taking delight in giving. And so, you know, when we get up in the morning, we're mostly focused on our day and our comfort, <laughs> different things. But think of how a bodhisattva's mind is. Their mind, because this is written for bodhisattvas, they're directed towards benefiting all beings. That's just their, that's their operating mode. So when they get up in the morning, they're not thinking, what's going to make me feel good today? And how can I get what I want? And how come the world doesn't treat me well enough? I thought that was pretty good. That's, they're waking up with this kind of joy and delight because they want to help other people. And that's really what's driving them. And they want to transform themselves with their, with their Dharma practice. So for us, at our level, this is, they say, of these six deeds, this is the easiest. And for myself, who's tried to work on this, I don't actually find it all that easy. Especially the part about giving without, uh, let's see, yeah, without any expectation. There's no, let's see without hope for return or any fruition. Not that easy to do. But it's actually very helpful to make uh, efforts to do that. A lot of times we're not aware of what our expectations are for others. And then, you know, I always think, I actually I often don't know what my expectations are. And usually when they aren't met, then I figure out what they were. Right. So that's what we would call the unconscious expectation that she's talking about in this chapter. And so that usually leads to disappointment. Right. But actually, if you think about how it is, uh, if you actually could give, if you actually, and we do this too, and without any expectation in return. I only have one story in my life where I actually did that. Does anyone have an example in their life, a story that 
of when they could see that they were actually able to give without anything and wanting anything in return, just this pure mind and were able to stay with that? Yeah. And in your mind, you just gave yeah, it away. I wrote it off. Yeah. Because you can get angry and get it back. Yeah. That's a good example. So somebody borrowed money, but in your mind, you actually gave it to them, knowing that they probably weren't going to be able to repay it. Yeah. Anyone else have a story from where they were actually giving without expecting anything in return? Giving to a beggar, yeah, that's a good example. It's not usually looking for much, yeah. I've I've done that too, where I, I give to homeless and things like that. But the thing I find is, even when I know that there's not going to be anything in return, something in the back of my mind is thinking, you know, what am I going to get out of this? Or I'm not getting <laughs> yeah. anything back. So yeah. it's almost. Uh, I had an opportunity yesterday to donate at the Campbell House in Spokane, mm -hmm. and I only had a 10 in my wallet, you know, it was full of ones, and I think there was a 5 in there, the, the box was, and I had to think about it a couple times, because, you know, I checked my wallet, and said, oh, I don't have any ones, so, and then I thought about it, and I realized, you know, Campbell House is a great place, and um, people enjoy being there, so um, I put a 10 in instead, and let it go, but... That's great. Yeah, that's so such a common experience, isn't it? There's always that thought. Yeah, like I have to, I have to kind of do the business side of this first. <laughs> <laughs> I gave a blanket one time to a hitchhiker. I loved this blanket, but I had picked him up hitchhiking. It was warm. He didn't have any money or a summer jacket on, and, and he, when I left him off, it was snowing. Mm -hmm. So I gave him this blanket, and I didn't want to, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I knew I, I needed to. Yeah, and you wouldn't have really, even though you kind of didn't want to because you liked it, I don't think you would have expected anything in return. No. Really, I mean, you, depending on the situation, but... No, I, I didn't think I would ever see him again. Yeah, yeah so... I don't know. I found when I first learned about this, I was kind of surprised how how hard it is to do. You know, that we're usually we can't get rid of this sense of me and my needs and my 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 and thinking about the future and you know. What I have noticed is there have been times, of course, when I've given and there's been times when I've not given. Mm -hmm. And what I notice about the objects that I had a chance to give but I elected to keep them. They always remind me of my inability to right. share. Yeah. Why did I keep this thing now? Because yeah. now it brings that up every time. <laughs> now, now you almost want to get rid of it. Yeah. <laughs> Take care of the memory. Yeah. You know, it, it almost seems impossible to, to give without expectation because one thing.
Yeah. And then there's the avoidance. Right. I mean, the, the story of the blanket's wonderful. Yeah. Because what would what what would you feel like if you left the guy there <laughs> in the snow with nothing? All right. So you gave the blanket, you avoided that feeling, <laughs> yeah. which would be horrible. Right. <laughs> you know, right. It just seems like it's, I, I, it, it's not of our consciousness, yeah. I think. The only story I have, I actually put a lot of effort into the motivation. I actually even went to a therapist. I was going to try to adopt my nephew when he was 12. And I spent a lot of time before I entered into this situation. And I even went to a therapist I'd worked with in the past. And I actually got, I was as clear as I've been on probably anything. And, and it didn't work out. But I always felt good about it. You know, I, I was quite clear about it. I, I was clear I wasn't doing this for me. That was clear. <laughs> and it was kind of hellacious and, you know, hard. There was, uh, and not enough support, really, from the systems. It didn't kick in even fast enough. But, um, you know, troubled kid, and none of the, the school system didn't want to have anything to do with them, and all the services didn't really help, and I was working full time. So it kind of failed, really. But I've always felt good about it, and I think it's because it's the one thing I spend a lot of time thinking about first, and that makes me think that that there's a big value in us really getting really clear on our motivations, you know. A beggar once um, gave me uh, a gift. It was quite unexpected, and I think he didn't even know that he was giving me a gift. But... Um, he allowed me to sit there and talk with him, mm. which is yeah. something I'd never done before. And uh, confronted my own um, prejudices or pre-notions about what a beggar is or what they do and how they relate to people. And to me, that was a very precious <coughs> gift. He didn't even know he was giving me. Mm. But um, I, I remember that quite fondly. And I, and I guess I will remember it for a long time because of the level, quality, and, and warmth of the conversation. Yeah. I would also encourage people to read the story about this, uh, from this chapter. It's, it's long, but it's very, very good. And it's just like that. It's a cancer story, cancer patient story, and the incredible amount of help that this person received and the way she worked with her mind around the whole thing. It's very beautiful. Okay, we'll do one more verse here. We're on to verse 26. This is uh, about ethical conduct. And um, it says, without, ethical, without ethics, you can't accomplish your own well-being. So wanting to accomplish others is laughable. Let's read that again. I think that's worth reading. Without ethics, you can't accomplish your own well-being. So wanting to accomplish others is laughable. Therefore, without worldly aspirations, safeguard your ethical conduct. This is the practice of bodhisattvas. So this is pointing out to us that um, if we want to be able to benefit others, we actually kind of have to get our, we have to not harm them. In order to not harm others, we have to get our own ethical conduct together, our own act together. What are we doing physically, verbally, and mentally? And so the Buddha helps us in this regard 
by teaching what we call these ten non-virtues, things that he wanted us to avoid. And then actually there's also ten virtues that are the kind of the opposite of those, you might say. And so the physical ones are killing, stealing, unwise and unkind sexual behavior. The verbal non-virtues are lying, creating dis, you know, disharmonious speech, harsh speech, and idle talk. And then the mental ones are coveting, maliciousness, and wrong views. And so, you know, all of these really start with the mind, and the mind is what is directing the body. We don't, we have to have an intention for, you know, speech to come out or for us to do an action with the body. So, um, I like to think about what would happen if even one of these ten things wasn't happening in the world, how different the world would be. Imagine just if just one of these, let's say there was no killing. That would be a very different world. All the news that you heard about Syria and anything, you know, everywhere would be different. And you just pick those individually and think about, wow, look at the impact these are making on our lives. So how are we going to help other people when we're, if we can't get away from these major things, right? So that's what this is talking about, this wish to abandon harm, then also to accumulate, ethical conduct also includes accumulating virtuous actions, which are kind of like not doing those is virtuous, and the opposite of those, like say, protecting life, that's the opposite of killing, and each of these has an op opposite, like speaking the truth, trying to use words that are um, not harsh, but are gentle, speaking kindly, things like that. So, and of course, the physical ones are easier than the ones related to speech, and the ones related to speech are easier than the mental ones. That's just how we're kind of wired, so we know that. Um, but to, that's kind of the basis, and then when we're doing that, we're actually transforming our minds, because everything's driven by the mind, and then we can actually get to the place where we're benefiting others. And in, our, in this practice, as a bodhisattva, we're not just thinking about this life, we're actually thinking about benefiting people for future lives as well, for long-term spiritual results as well. Can any, does anyone have a story that they might share about how they have, having uh, changed your ethics has impacted your life? or others around you to make you be able to be more beneficial. <laughs> Go ahead. I was thinking specifically, and this is not included in, in the ten non-virtues, but in the five lay precepts, which is the, um, to abstain from intoxicants. Right. Yeah. And I, I you know, I, I certainly caused a lot of harm in my past while well, I influence these things. I remember having a conversation with somebody recently who just told me how much they like to put a buzz on, and then they kind of like were like, "Oh, you know, but you you have you feel like you have to follow the five fifth precept because it's um uh, like some kind of like she it was like she implied some kind of an imposed law." That right. Yeah. Like, Coming from the exside, right, like right. your, your ethical so, conduct didn't come from inside; <laughs> came from like right, rules right. on the outside. Which maybe in the past was true, like in that mm -hmm. when I tried to get you know clean and sober, that that uh, didn't work too well, right? So, because it was kind of fear-based, mm -hmm. you know, half-hearted. But what I pointed out was that, like, you know, um, 
no, this isn't coming from anything outside me. This is coming, rather I embrace this because right. this is the way, these are my values. This is the way, this is something I want. I can see how much better my life works without these things in my life after mm -hmm. 17 years. Mm -hmm. And I can see how, you know, how much suffering it causes for people who don't. And that's not to say everybody abuses it, but I work with a recovery house now that the, you know, the population we work with, addiction is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And I see how much suffering it really causes, and I'm so grateful, and I have compassion for them, but I'm so grateful, too, for all the kindness I've received to stay, you know, with yeah. that motivation to want to be clean and sober all this time. All right. I, I wasn't right now. Example. Be, be, I, can't, I can't really begin to tell you how much harm would cause myself and others. Yeah, this perfect example. I mean, I think all of us have probably witnessed this one. Even if you haven't used things yourself around us in society, so much going on. Anyone else? Yeah. Not lying was a pretty big deal. How did it change things for you, for others and for yourself? Well, I don't know what it did to others. I mean, They seem friendly when you didn't lie or when you when did I lie? Didn't lie? When you did not lie? Yeah, because I mean, it's obvious sometimes, no matter how much you try to hide it. But um, it kind of made me um, just think twice about what I was going to say, mm -hmm. and what my motivation was. Mm -hmm. And uh, that just like revealed this whole new dimension of fears that I didn't know about that yeah, I had. Right. That were driving my speech. Yeah, right. And that really helped me to like uh, recognize what I needed to work on? That's such an excellent example because it really shows like um, I think what most people who take precepts experience or make any kind of commitment to change their behaviors you start having to see okay there's the surface thing I'm not going to lie but then what's all the things that are underneath that and all the things that are impacting it you know from outside and inside eventually if you stay with that they're they're going to come you know, to light, to, you know, to dawn to your mind, and you'll be able to see things. That's just quite helpful, you know, especially in terms of seeing, I think, uh, or, well, for me, I would say motivations, you know, like, why, why am I going to tell this little white lie? Why did I do this? You know, and helping to see, sometimes, just you're kind of uncomfortable in a situation, and then, then now I can work more directly with the, what that situation was, you know. Things like that. Just it leads to places that I think I found kind of unexpected working on some of these kind of ethical things. Uh, maybe like we're covering up one thing by these actions and we, by not doing them, then we have the opportunity to see what's going on underneath them. Okay, let's sit quietly um, and just we'll re spend a few minutes reflecting and then we'll dedicate. So you want to pick something from what we covered this morning, and I would encourage you to uh, go forward in the book and read through verse 30 and do the same thing where you try to understand the meaning of the verse and apply it to your life. But pick something from this morning that you want to remember and take home with you. And then by way of dedication, I just want to mention that 
maybe we aren't all planning on becoming bodhisattvas, but still looking at these generosity and ethical conduct, um, the fortitude, the joyous effort, concentration and the wisdom, it's actually quite valuable for us, even in our day-to-day -day lives, as we get our ethic, our, as we are generous, it helps us to lessen our attachment. As we have less attachment, it's easier for us to keep ethical conduct. As we, our ethical conduct gets better, actually it's easier not to have so much anger. You don't have as much stuff <laughs> that you have to get involved with. And as you have less anger, it's easier to have joyous effort. And so you can work your way, you know, seeing how these different practices relate to each other and use them in very pragmatic ways in your daily life and also in your spiritual path, um, whatever your path may be, these would probably be beneficial. So let's take any of the good energy from this morning and all of it and dedicate it to all sentient beings, especially in the areas of difficulty in the world, especially the people in Oakland who were killed in that fire yesterday, and just any beings who are suffering and have this be like a condition for their alleviation of suffering now and in the future. Then we'll turn to page 30 and make the dedication prayer. Due to this merit, may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha, that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind not yet born arise and grow. May that born have no decline, but increase forever.